I'm going to read to you, uh, Spencer already read it, but I would like to, to read the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 64. So, we've been working through the book of Acts, but today I took a detour, and we're going to come back to Acts. Today, being the first day of Advent, I wanted to... I wanted to look at Isaiah 64. I think it's very relevant for the day and the time that we're living in. Um, we are, as a church, um, through most of our history, Advent was not something that we marked or celebrated as a church. Um, we are not or were not, have not historically been what is commonly known as a liturgical church. But you do realize every church has a liturgy, right? Uh, today marks the first Sunday of Advent and the beginning of, of this season in which we are to be reminded of and celebrate the coming, the arrival of Jesus. And that's what Advent means, coming or arrival. And it's not just about the coming of Christ as a babe in the manger, but it's about His coming. So His coming that not only is past, and not only is coming that's future, but He is coming. There is a present that we live in, and we should be mindful of the coming of Christ. We should be mindful of the presence of Christ. And Advent is supposed to help us do that. It's a celebration of the Christ who will come, the Christ who is coming, and the Christ who has come. Liturgy simply means our normal form of worship. It's the customary worship performed each week. It's our weekly rite of worship. So there's certain things we do each week. You know them. We sing songs. We pray. We confess the Apostles' Creed. Not because we're Catholic in the denominational sense, but because we're Catholic in the universal sense. And our faith as part of the Catholic Church, the universal church, there are certain things that we all must believe in order to be part of that church. We confess those things so that our children hear them, so that our children grow up in an environment hearing what we believe. They should hear what mom and dad believe, not just on Sunday, but they should hear that throughout the week. They should see that in how we live our lives. Advent is a season of the year that reminds us what we have daily in Christ. It reminds us that in Christ we have the eternal assurance of hope, the assurance of peace, the assurance of joy, the assurance of love. Advent reminds us of his coming, and that is why we celebrate. Christmas should not just be a celebration of the birth in a past historical event. Christmas is a celebration of of Christ. Yes, because he was born, but yes, because he is present with us now, and yes, because he will come again one day. 
So we look at the words of the prophet Isaiah today at a time in Israel and Judah's history when the people of God needed a revelation of God and of his salvation. The salvation that only God could bring to them. So it is our same need today. We need a revelation of God. We need the salvation of God, and only God can bring that. More than ever before in our lifetime, we need to be reminded of Christ and of his coming. We need a revelation, a reformation. We need a visitation from God today. This is what Isaiah was crying out to God. He was crying out to God that God would come, that God would reveal himself, that God would visit his people. We need to remember God in his ways. We need to know our sin and our need to be saved. And we cannot know our need to be saved if we don't know our sin, if we don't know why or from what we need to be saved from. We lack nothing from God. He has freely given us all things in Christ. The lack is in his people. The lack is in us. In our willingness to walk in his ways. Christ will come again. Christ is coming. Christ has come. We are waiting for his future coming. But we're not waiting for Christ to give us something we lack in him because he has given us all things already. The question is, are we waiting for him daily? Are we prepared for him? Are we ready for his advent, his coming, his arrival? That is a question that we should ask ourselves on a regular basis. So let's read Isaiah chapter 64, the first nine verses. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. As fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. 
Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds to your truth, to your gospel, that it would indeed be the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Lord, we confess today that we believe. We have already confessed what we believe and who we believe in. Father, I pray that you would help that confession we make with our mouth be the reality that we live from our hearts and demonstrate and manifest to the world around us who is in desperate need of your light and of your hope. May we be that light and that hope made known to them because of the light and the hope that dwells and abides within us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. and We ask God that we would be faithful witnesses to that glorious image. Father, we confess we need to be saved. And we confess that you are the only hope, the only salvation there is. Father, we ask that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah begins this chapter. Of course, when Isaiah, when this was penned, there was no chapter and verse. But these words from the prophet, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Literally, he cries out to God, God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And your presence would shake the very foundations of the earth, shake the mountains, that the nations would know that your adversaries would know. This is the cry of the prophet. God, tear open the heavens and come down to make your name known. Don't think that all of God's adversaries are outside of the church. Isaiah is not writing to the world. He's writing to God's people. Specifically, he's writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was already judged. They were already carried away. And those Assyrians who carried away the northern kingdom were coming now for Judah. And judgment was upon them. And Isaiah is writing and warning them, because of your sin and your sinful ways, because you have not remembered God in His ways, Judgment is coming, but there's a promise God makes, and he gives that hope of the promise, but he gives a clear warning to God's people, and he talks about God's adversaries, and yes, the world is adversarial to God, but the world is supposed to be because the world are the enemies of God. But the people of God, the people who profess to be God's people, in professing to be God's people, in confessing the creed every week, we are confessing that we are God's people. So 
the implication is we are not the enemies of God. In confessing what we believe, in confessing the creed, in confessing who Jesus is and who we believe Him to be and who we confess Him to be, we are confessing that we are God's children, that we are no longer enemies, but we are of the household of God. Therefore, we should remember Him in His ways. And so manifest those ways in the way we live our life. This was the problem with Judah. They were not doing this. He warned the people of God and the adversaries of God who called themselves the people of God. Yes, the warning applies to all people in all nations, but it is not the world who is acting contrary to their covenant or their confession of God. It is the people of God. It's God's people who are acting contrary. It's the people of God who profess faith in God but continue in ways contrary to God and His ways that Isaiah warns. If you continue in these ways, if you continue in sin, God's judgment is coming. If we are God's people, we cannot continue to walk in ways contrary to God and expect no consequences. This is what Isaiah is telling Judah. This is what Isaiah is telling God's people 600 years before the birth of Christ. And though this prophecy was not written to us specifically, it absolutely was written for us specifically. We are living in a time in our very own nation that is very similar to what Judah was experiencing in her time. And if we think that we can confess to be someone and our lives are completely contrary to that, and, and there is no consequence to that, then we are fooling ourselves just as Judah was fooling herself. Now, we're not, we're not saved we're not godly. We don't have the favor of God because we are Americans. There is no salvation because we're Americans. But yet, as Americans, we confess in God we trust. It's on our currency. We say a pledge, to, a pledge of allegiance to the flag, and we say one nation under God. We have founding documents that reference God and the Creator, whose very structure and whose very, the very principles that they were founded upon came from the very principles of the Word of God that we're reading today. Everything about our nation that is good, that we celebrate, that we call a blessing is because of the gospel. And as the church, Jesus said, we are salt and light. We are salt that is not to lose its flavor. We are light that is not to be hidden and unseen. And the reason this is important for us, because we live in a nation that is going to stand or fall based on what God's people do. Because this nation was founded by God's people 
on the principles of God, and we can't expect that this nation will continue if we forsake God and forsake His principles and His ways. And so our proclamation and our preaching cannot begin with the world. It has to begin in the house of God. The Bible says judgment begins in the house of God. That means we need to give the warning of judgment first to the house of God because it's the people of God that ultimately will determine whether God hears from heaven and heals our land. God doesn't say if the world, not called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. He says if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. This is why Isaiah is writing to the people of God. And God is using a heathen pagan nation to judge his people. And he did it then, almost 3,000 years ago, and he'll do it again today. He absolutely will. This was the sin of Judah. They professed faith in God. They even worshipped God, all the while continuing in their sinful, idolatrous ways. They gave lip service to God along with the blood of bulls and goats, thinking that God would be appeased and that they would suffer no consequences. Their suppression of the truth, though, cost them dearly. It's very common today to have people at every walk of life, from regular folk that you meet on the street, to our politicians running for our nation's offices to talk about God and their faith in God. And how we should trust in God. But yet those same politicians are supporting the wholesale slaughter of innocent babies who are pushing legislation to make it legal and accepted nationwide for a mother to be able to murder her baby the very day that it's to be born. Do you, see the, do you see the conflict there? I can say whatever I want about my worship of God, about my belief in God, about how much I love God, but what really is going to determine that is going to be how I live my life. And there are sins of commission, well, I would never murder my baby, but I support the right of, of, of someone else to make that choice. And there are sins of omission. I wouldn't do it, but I support other people who choose to do that. That's a sin. It's a sin. There's no other way to say it. It's a sin. To support that is a sin. To support the people who support that is a sin. So Isaiah is warning God's people because he loves God's people. And God puts this word of warning in him because God loves his people. The good news is God still loves his people today. And God is still warning his people today. And if you count yourself his people, then, then let's heed the warning. And, and don't keep it to yourself. This is the importance of the gospel. The gospel is, is good news. 
it's, it's only good news if we understand that we're being saved from something. If I, don't, if I don't need to be saved, then what's the point of the gospel? If I need to be saved, then I need to know what I need to be saved from and what I'm saved to. The good news also includes a message about our sinfulness and our need for salvation. So Isaiah is recalling those times when God did awesome things. He says in verse 3, When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. So God tore open the heavens and came down at Mount Sinai. God tore open the heavens and came down when he parted the Red Sea before they got to Sinai. God came down and he tore open the heavens when he sent the plagues upon Egypt. When he manifest himself in the burning bush, we're going back in time. God didn't just tear open the heavens when Jesus was born. God has been tearing open the heavens and revealing himself to man since the beginning of creation. The question is, do we have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are our hearts open for the seed to be implanted? Or are we closed? God has shaken the mountains on numerous occasions in times past, and he's doing it now. Can you feel it? It's happening right now in our nation. We need to understand this. There are literal mountains that God has caused to quake. There are also mountains that represent authorities that God has caused to quake and crumble. When Jesus said to his disciples, if you have enough faith, you can remove this mountain into the sea, he, he wasn't just talking about a literal mountain. In, in fact, he was talking about those obstacles, those authorities, those things that oppose us. We are living in a time right now that, that we are seeing mountains being raised up to oppose us. And the question is, will we as God's people have enough faith to see them removed. God is shaking things up even now. We must see and understand this and trust God in the midst of all his shaking. It can be scary. It was for the children of Israel when they stood at the base of Sinai and they saw the fire and felt the quaking of the earth and they knew Moses was up there. Moses comes down and, and God speaks and the people hear and, and they, sell, they tell Moses, listen, we don't want God to speak to us. He's too scary. You go talk to God and then you come back and tell us what God says. We say things like, we pray things like, we want a visitation, God come down. But do we really understand what we're asking for? Very often we don't. But here's the thing, Advent is about hope. And our only hope is in Christ. Paul quotes this, this passage from Isaiah in his letter to the Corinthians. Listen to, to, to Isaiah 64, 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eyes seen any God besides you who acts 
for the one who waits for him. Who does God act for? The one who waits for him. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, But as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Paul is writing, he's referring to what the words of Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 64. He said, there is no other God besides our God who acts for the one who waits for him. Those who love him are the ones who wait for him. Do you see this? Paul's not misquoting the scripture. Paul's giving us commentary on the scripture. It's not different. Those who love him and those who wait for him are not two different classes of people. They're the same. God acts for the ones who love him, the ones who wait for him. Those who hope in him are those who wait for him and those who love him. This is a promise God gives to his people. Hope is not an emotion. Hope is not found in our treasure. It's not found in our talents. It's not found in our achievements or our success in life. That's not our hope. Hope is not how big our bank account is. Hope is not how well we've planned for our future and our retirements. That's not hope. Hope is found in only one place, in only one person. Jesus is our hope. The things that we commonly hope in are things that could pass away in a minute in this world. And then what do we have? We have nothing. We have no hope. But Jesus is a hope, the hope that can never be taken away from us. It doesn't matter what laws they pass. It doesn't matter what they do. Even if they take your life, they can't take hope from you because they can't take Jesus from you. And they can't take you from Jesus. Hope. Our hope is in Christ. He alone is our hope. As the catechism says, both in life and in death. Advent reminds us of our hope in Him. A hope that is immovable and eternal. Now more than ever in our lives, we need the hope that is found only in Christ. We must take this hope found in Christ to the world that has misplaced its hope. Or has no hope whatsoever. But I want you to understand that misplaced hope is no hope. You can think you have all the hope in the world. But if your hope is placed in the wrong place. The wrong one. You don't have any hope. It's like thinking you got all this money in your bank account. And you go and you write a check. And then you find out. Ah, ah, ah. You had misplaced hope. Christ alone is our hope. We must make hope known. We must make Christ known to a world that is hopeless without him. In verse 5, the prophet says, You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways. 
You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. He says, meet us, Lord. We need to be saved. There is a promise and there is a warning here in the words of the prophet. The promise is that God meets those who rejoice and do righteousness. He meets those who remember Him, who remember God in God's ways. As we are walking in His ways, we should remember Him. It's when we're not walking in His ways that we're not remembering Him. The warning is that God is angry because of our sin and our continuation in sinful ways and that we need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin, but ultimately, we need to be saved from God. Because it's God who's going to judge sin. Now, people don't like this. I'm telling you. People do not like to hear that we need to be saved from God. Oh, no. God's the one that's going to save us. Yeah, he's gonna, he saved us from his wrath. Why doesn't the atheist fear? Because he doesn't believe there's a God to fear. Why doesn't the Christian... Walking in ways contrary to God, not fear. Because he doesn't know he should be afraid of God. Now, we don't like that kind of language because we don't want to teach people to be afraid of God. But yet, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And God's not someone that we just want to be afraid of, like, you know, like, I flinch every time I think of him because I'm afraid he's going to do something to me. No. But do we know who God is? Do we know how holy, how righteous, how pure he is, and how unholy and how unrighteous and how impure we are? If we understand that contrast, then, then we should understand why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In sin, we forsake the ways of God. In sin, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness and willfully forget God in His ways. In sin, we choose to continue in sinful ways instead of the ways of God. We need to be saved. We need a Savior. Who needs a Savior, kids? Those who are lost. And we are all lost without Jesus. And if you are in Christ then you've been found, and that's good news. But now we need to walk like the found, like the redeemed. Isaiah says in verse 6, But we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Verse 7, And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. You see, they were already suffering because of their sin. They just didn't know how much more they were going to suffer because of it. It reminds me of America. Do you realize we are already suffering because of our sin? We just don't realize how much more we could possibly suffer suffer because of it. And the remedy is 
to repent, to turn to God, to cry out to God, because God is our only hope. We are all like an unclean thing, or we are all become as one unclean. This, this is a picture of moral leprosy. We have become moral lepers, and there is no hope for us unless God cleanses us. For only the Lord can heal us. But Isaiah says, but there's no one calling upon his name. Here we are, a bunch of lepers, but no one is crying out to God. Can we not see our leprosy? Can we not see our uncleanness? Can we not see our sin? If we could, if we would, if we would acknowledge it, then we should cry out to God. But Isaiah says, but no one's calling upon his name. There's no one who stirs himself to take hold of God. Who does that remind you of? Think of the woman with the issue of blood who pressed through the crowd in her uncleanness. She was unclean. She was breaking the law. She was subject to severe punishment, but she was so desperate. She had stirred herself to the point that she said, I'm going to take hold of Jesus no matter what the consequences, and she pressed through the crowd, and she took hold, and she said, if only I could take the hem of his garment, I believe I could be made clean. And she was. She took a risk. She took a chance. She stirred herself up, and she laid hold of God. Isaiah says, no one's doing that here. We're a bunch of moral lepers, but no one is calling upon God no one is stirring themselves up to lay hold of him. Our righteousness is unclean in your sight. That's what he says. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Literally, all our righteous deeds we think are so impressive are really like minstrel rags. This is what Isaiah says here. We are like the leaf that fades on the tree in fall and winter. And our iniquities, our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Why is no one calling upon him? Why is no one stirring themselves? Because our iniquities have taken us away. This is a picture of what unrepentant sin does to a person and a people. When we are pursuing the ways of sin and we are not waiting on God, we are not loving Him. Therefore, we will not see or hear what He alone has prepared for those who wait on Him, who love Him. Those pursuing sin have been taken away by it. I mean, ultimately, what Isaiah writes there and what Paul references in 1 Corinthians, the hope, the, the thing that eye has not seen, that ear is not heard, that was unheard of, that was unthinkable, is Jesus coming, putting on flesh, and not only being obedient to his Father, but obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For what reason? To redeem his people from their sin, to take upon himself the very wrath and the very punishment that we deserve. And the fact that Jesus took that wrath and the fact that Jesus took that punishment 
should not make us want to go out and sin. It should do the exact opposite. It should make us want to live lives that honor and glorify the God who saved us. The only one who could save us. In Christ, we can come to the very throne of grace where there is no longer a veil of separation. We can enter freely into the presence and call upon His name. In Christ, we have the power to resist sin. You could not do that before. You were, you were sin. You were in sin. You were darkness. You had no power to resist it. Resist all you want. You can't change your nature. Even if you can change your behavior, you can't change your nature. Good works aren't going to get you to heaven. Jesus gets you to heaven. But now in Christ, with a new nature, being a new creation, we have the power to resist sin. We have the power to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices and to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Punishing all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. That's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses, chapter 10 verses 3 through 6. In Christ, God no longer hides his face from us. We are no longer consumed by our iniquities. In Christ, we can freely come to God. Why would we not? If you've been given access to God, why would you not come to Him? Why would we continue in sin once we have been set free from it? Why would we stay captives when the prison doors have been open and we are free? <clears throat> it's time for the church, for each one of us to stir ourselves to take hold of God. In Christ, God has given us that privilege by grace through faith. It is ours if we will walk in it. This is why Paul commanded the Galatians to walk according to the Spirit. And he said, if you do that, you will no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is not always easy. Very often it's, it's anything but easy. But just because something is hard doesn't mean it's not possible. The Bible would not command us to walk according to the Spirit if it was impossible for us to do that. With God now, all things are possible. We can walk according to the Spirit and no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh by the grace of Jesus. Christ has come to save His people from their sin. Praise God, He has finished that work in the cross. And it is up to us to walk in that finished work. In the last two verses of this section of Scripture, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah presents our utter dependency upon God. Listen to these two verses. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Here is Isaiah's confession. You are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We all are the work of your hand. 
Isaiah confesses sin. He confesses the iniquity. He says, God, you are justified in being angry with us because we are in sin and we continue in that sin. But then he pleads for the mercy of God. He calls upon God as a father, but not just as a father, but as our potter. This is really amazing. God is the father who has brought us into life. God is our potter. We are the clay that God is forming and fashioning according to his will and purpose. God is our father and our potter, and we are the work of his hand. That should bring us great comfort, but for many it does not. In fact, for many that is the most offensive picture one can give of man's relationship to God. And the reason that's offensive is because it goes all the way back to the sin in the garden at the very beginning. Man's sin from the beginning was his desire to be like God. In fact, to be his own God. This is man's desire to be in control. My, my truth in life is this. I've told you this very often. We're all control freaks. Some of us know it. Some of us don't. Some of us take pride in it. Some of us don't think much about it. But this is our sin nature. We want to be in control. And if someone says you're not in control, that is not just offensive. That actually makes people angry. But the reality is this. Man is not in control. God is. If you don't believe that, just read the Bible. Because the Bible tells us throughout that man is not in control, God is in control. Especially here in the book of Isaiah, throughout the 66 chapters of Isaiah, I mean, it's all right there. Isaiah gives us a picture of our utter dependence upon God through a father and a potter. Think about these two images. It's like Jesus saying, you must be born again. I mean, Jesus could have said anything, but he said, you must be born again. He tells us that, that we have to do the very thing we have no power to do ourselves. And here, Isaiah says, you're our father, you're our potter. Two things that we, we don't have any control over. Now think about this. God is the father who brought us into life. Isaiah gives us a picture of utter dependence upon God. A father brings a child into the world apart from any work, any effort, any input from the child. Did you ask where to be born? Did you ask what color hair? I didn't, I didn't, if I would have asked my parents, I would have said, look, I don't want to go bald. I'd like to keep that full head of hair I was born with. You should see my baby pictures. I guess that's why I'm bald now. I got all my hair at the front end. Came out of my mama's womb with a big black head of hair. Now look at me. My, my license says bald. <laughs> hair color used to be brown. Now it says bald. <laughs> what can you do? God's in control. I'm not. 
He said, you're going to be bald. Okay. That's why I wear hats. But think about this. A father brings a child into the world apart from any work, effort, or input from the child. What does a potter do? A potter creates the pot with no work, no effort, no input from the lump of clay he's forming. We can kick against this all we want, but this is the consistent picture God gives us throughout his word. God created us, formed us in his love. It is God's love as father and creator, as potter, that Isaiah appeals to. Do not be furious, O Lord, though he has every right to be furious, nor remember iniquity forever, for we certainly have committed sin. He's not asking God to, to look beyond their iniquity. He's saying don't remember it forever. He's acknowledging God's justice to deal with sin. Isaiah acknowledges the sin of the people, but appeals to the mercy and the grace of God to not remember it forever. Isaiah, while acknowledging sin in an act of humble confession, is appealing to the Father and Creator. Isaiah, in humble repentance, is asking God to turn his face and his heart toward the children of his creation, the children of his love. Isaiah confesses, we are all your people. This is our confession today. You did it earlier. We are all your people. What is our life saying? I know what your mouth said today. What is your life saying? I know what my mouth said today. What is my life saying about who I am and who God is? As God's people, we are not in control God is, but God has given each of us a will to be exercised for his glory. Did you hear me? God has given each of us a will that we can exercise for his glory. This is why Isaiah is warning the people of God. He's saying, come back. Stop walking away from God. As an act of your will, repent and come back to God. Avert the judgment that is surely coming because of your continued sin. If there wasn't an opportunity for repentance, then Isaiah would not have issued the warning. Just because God is in control doesn't mean that we don't have a will to exercise. We obviously do. Our sin is that we exercise our will not for his glory, but for our own. And for that sin, we are called to repent. In repentance, we appeal to our Father and our Creator. We are his children, the vessels formed from the clay he created. We are his people. May we live like it. May we pray like it. May we hear the words of God as we hear them spoke, as we read them, may we hear his word. May we pray and humble ourselves so that God would hear from heaven and heal our land. On this first Sunday of Advent, after we have celebrated Thanksgiving Day, as we do every week, we come to the table of Thanksgiving. That's what that table is. It's a table of thanksgiving. And we come to this table that is 
more full and more fulfilling than any other table we can come to. Because this is the Lord's table. It is the body and the blood of Jesus that we proclaim. It is a more full and a more fulfilling table. It is the table of the Lord. We need to be saved. Our nation needs to be saved. The church, the church needs to be saved. Now, I believe in the eternal security of the believer. I just don't believe that every person who professes to be the people of God are actually the people of God because they're living too contrary. But if they profess to be the people of God, then we take them at their confession, but at that confession, we also call them to repentance. And it is those who profess to be God's people who must repent. And the good news is, we can repent anytime, any place of any sin. And if we cry out to God from a heart of faith, God will hear and God will answer and God will save. As you trust Jesus, as you profess to be his covenant people, come to the Lord's table. Welcome and welcome to Jesus. Let's stand. Here's your charge today on this first day of Advent as we celebrate the coming of Jesus. Isaiah said, there is no one who will call on your name. Our charge today are to be that people who will call upon his name. Isaiah said, there is no one who will stir themselves to take hold of God. Our charge today is to be that people who would stir ourselves and take hold of God because by the blood of Jesus, we now can come to the very presence. There is no longer any separation, but we must stir ourselves and lay hold of God who is our Father and our potter. And He is molding and He is shaping us and conforming us to the very image of the Son of Glory. We must not forget we are charged to remember Him in His ways, to walk in them. His promise is to meet all who wait on Him, all who love Him. May we faithfully wait on Him while we remember Him and His ways and walk in them. To remember them, to believe in Him, is to walk in them. It's to live what we profess we believe. The cry of the prophet was, Tear open the heavens and come down. Shake all that can be shaken. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says God will do. He will shake everything that can be shaken. We celebrate the coming of Jesus. We are a people, His people, called by His name. And the question is, are we ready are we ready to meet him? His promise is he will meet those who wait on him. The question is, are we ready to meet him? I pray that we are. I pray we are that people, that we will be salt and light in the ground of earth that God has given to us to live in.
in this time of visitation we have on this planet. Amen?